0: how are you sir
1: good how about you
0: doing well how's audio on your end
1: um let me turn it up some
0: all right yeah sounds good likewise likewise it's good to meet you um Let's uh just go ahead and jump right into it. Pretty uh pretty open beginning here. If uh if you're ready to get going, sure. Okay. Is that a uh,
1: Tom? Is that a Tom DeLong Stratocaster you got there?
0: Yes. What a great thing to get started off with. Um. Yeah. It is. Uh. I. It's a guitar. You know. I wanted it. I am th- about to be thirty six years old, and uh, I wanted that exact guitar and that exact color since the eighth grade. And my wife got it for me for Christmas two years ago. Nice. Yes. Yeah. I saw videos of you playing and I wondered if we would get into talking about music, even though, um, you know, martial arts is the main thing we'll talk about. I definitely, uh, like, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's your background playing? I saw you playing with a, uh, you know, a group on, uh, Well, of-
1: like, like so many from my generation, um, I started listening to Ellis Presley who played a guitar. And so I probably got my first guitar around 62 or something like that. And uh, then the Beatles came out in 64, I think it was. And um, I was well into playing guitar by then. And uh, 67, 68, I think we were actually had the garage bands and uh, winning variety shows and uh, playing Jimi Hendrix and Carlos Santana and um, Eric Clapton. And uh, following that path.
0: Uh, okay, so what uh, d- did you attend any live music performances during that during that era?
1: Um, no, there there was not a lot of live performances. I saw Chet Atkins once, but he was way above me, uh, and I didn't really have an interest in that that style. Um, I I can't think of anyone else that I saw in, until the seventies when I started in college uh, saw. Of course santana and uh, uh chicago um uh, all, all the big ones that was back that, that far i haven't been to a concert in ages
0: man i just went to, uh my wife loves live music i do too um we follow the band uh widespread panic around i don't know if you've listened to them very much I've, i have heard of them yeah their guitar player um look, it, jimmy herring is uh an amazing guitarist uh not super well known, but man, he, uh, I always just joke with people and tell me that he made me cry one time.
1: <laughs> well, um, I mostly, um, people all the time ask me about songs and if I know lyrics and honestly, I never listened to the lyrics of any song. It was always an instrumental to me. Um, I love the way they sounded. I, I, I was a big venture fan. I finally got to meet the ventures. Um, uh, at a concert. And, um, I, I just loved instrumental music. I still love instrumental music. Um, and, uh, so that's how I got into the guitar. I still play guitar. I pro- I, at one point I had 50 guitars that that was a little obsessive.
0: I was, I had 32 and I downsized quite a bit. I just recently, the only other guitar I ever really wanted as bad as that yellow one over there is a, a 91, telecaster plus deluxe kind of yeah. guitar they just made them 90 91 92 but i finally tracked one down in my favorite color blue and yeah but it is uh in doing that so i was like man i'm gonna downsize so um I, I i downsize the collection quite a bit so well i i still have
1: 20 or 30 i don't i'm not exactly sure but i don't play them all i have three um gibson sgs uh, standards and a 61 that I play all the time and um i I, I do gigs maybe uh, once every other month I probably do one two three four probably five or six a year and that's it you don't need too many guitars for something like that um I was playing um with a church uh praise band for I don't know 10 years and it was just kind of I could sell the guitars on eBay, so I would start out by, I'd have just a variety of guitars, ES-335s, 355s, SGs, PRSs, Um, and I would buy one if I liked it, I kept it, if I didn't, I'd sell it on eBay for about the same amount that I paid for it, so um, I just ended up with a bunch of guitars all at once, and then Uh, again, about every Christmas there for four or five years, I'd go on eBay and sell all 10 guitars or so.
0: Yeah, that's a great time of year to do it. That's uh, yeah, for sure. That's how that's how I move several the marketplace on Facebook too is uh, a really good spot for local people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, what a cool Okay, yeah. Well, that's, um, you know, I really, uh, there's another Tom DeLonge signature model that they're about to be making um it's a fender starcaster, but then you mentioned um they did a signature model for him and a i believe it was an epiphone or in a gibson e s three thirty three you mentioned mm-hmm. uh the yes uh, what uh three thirty one and three thirty five um yeah yeah but and then a good friend of mine he his favorite guitar ever is a casino and i played it several times and it's, sure. it's a beautiful sounding guitar yeah
1: um well um Back in the 60s, um, Epiphone was a big name. I mean, on the same level with um, Gibson. And so a, a lot of guitar players <clears throat> preferred the, um, the Epiphone. I did. I, um, I, let's see, there was a, a guitar player. Um, Leon Rhodes was his name. Incredible country jazz um, player, and, and he always played Epiphone. So I, I was always attracted to the 335 style. I've had a dozen of them, but, um, now I like that SG and that's, I'm just sticking with that.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I have an Epiphone SG, um, and, uh, you know, I like playing around with the slide on that guitar. That's just a different feeling guitar. I do, I do yeah. pick it up and play it. I would say a little bit more than some of the other ones, but, um, it's a, it's a really interesting model. Uh, I would, I would like to play more SGs cause I've played some friends over the years, but. Um, I've only owned that little Epiphone and it's, um, it's a great playing guitar though.
1: Yeah. In my opinion, you could take, uh, 10 Gibson SGs. One of them is really sings really is outstanding. And the other nine sell them, get rid of them. And that's, that's why I'm down to three guitars that I play all the time. They're early 2000 models, fantastic tone uh the necks are just perfect on them and uh so i you get happy after a while
0: (laughs) yeah man you know um i just recently stumbled across a podcast um i'll I'll tell you about it uh with paul reed smith uh the guy but man he has all of the artists that he makes stuff for on his podcast that plays guitars, from john mayer to jimmy herring who i mentioned you name it the anybody that plays a prs that's living, comes on and talks with him, but they get off and talk about recording and he's a collector of vintage microphones that were used to record mm-hmm. tunes and just so much interesting music history, really. Um, yeah. I, I kind of stumbled on it and then I've been watching them quite often, so.
1: Well, I, I watch those Joe Bonamassa uh, videos. Uh, I mean, he's got, what does he call it? Nerdville or something like that. Uh, he has hundreds and hundreds and, I guess the, uh, the tax break for him is to take them on the road and actually play them. And so um, he's, uh, it, it's always interesting to watch his, he's he's got tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars That's tied up in there. So he's got to be making pretty good money there. I've, I've seen him once.
0: I've seen him once also. I believe he, one of his amps is a Dumble amp, which is like yeah. tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars. I've seen him go for
1: yeah, I, I've heard of them. Never played one. Um, I really like an amp with uh, just a very Fenderish clear sound. Um, I, I do foot pedals for the um, the uh, reverb, and then of course I use a compressor sustainer, and that's my sound nowadays. I I, I don't really care that much for the distorted sound, which is very popular, but um, it's not my cup of tea anymore. Um, but a good just a good, dist- a good um, uh, sustainer compressor and the good quality, um, hall level reverb. That's a fantastic sound for me.
0: Yeah. You know, I got really into pedals for a long time and somewhat recently, um, upgraded one of my amps to a fender twin deluxe. Uh-huh. reverb. Um, yeah and it is, oh man, it's amazing. It's like the sound I was digging through all those pedals for really on the reverb side, but. You know, I can crank it and then I have a little uh, direct out box I will use with it that um, I'll pair it with a uh, Vox AC30. Yeah, I
1: I have not played the Vox AC30, but I understand it's a standard. Uh, For years, I used Mesa Boogie, uh, the Mark series, and um, that gave me everything I I needed. But once I started playing with the church, I I really didn't need um, uh, the praise band. I really didn't need distortion. And but I had to have that sustained, so I got it from a compressor, and it's fantastic sound. I, I that's what I like now. It was the sound I always wanted, but I didn't know what it was. And I finally, you go through enough pedals, you go through enough amps and things, and and you find out what you were looking for.
0: That's well, you know, and I think this lends to some other things we'll uh, talk about because I meet other martial arts, uh, you know, uh, people whether they own academies or. Or, or you know, uh, competitors, but they're always into lots of other cool peripheral things. Professor, mm-hmm. um, I myself taught college for uh, the last four years uh, here in Arkansas, and <laughs> went through and got my master's in history. But uh, y- y- what? Um, so what? What exactly do you do at Radford? Uh, you know, like it, you seem to be a, a renaissance guy. You've got you've got the academia going, um, but uh, and I, w- I definitely want to talk about the karate college Um, because I've heard so many stories over the years, but I I thought we might, uh, you know, get into what you're doing uh, with, with courses you offer and stuff like that.
1: Well, uh, let's start with, uh, let's start at the beginning. Okay. So um, I started college in 1969, never really thought about it. Um, I was right. I was nine miles from a big university called Virginia Tech. Um, And so uh, it was hard to get in there, but I managed to get in and um, uh, studied um, studied at Virginia Tech. Um, I, I was a martial arts practitioner, and I was hooked on karate. I mean, of course, that's all there was back then: karate and jujitsu. If you practice karate, chances are you practice some jujitsu or judo as well. Um, so I, I was with the karate club, um, and every chance I, I, I had to write a, an article or a uh, research paper for a uh, for a class i would focus on asian martial arts or asian history uh, philosophies and things like that so i finished um in 73 i graduated same year uh, let's see i graduated a month before bruce lee died and um uh in philosophy um, and i i had just about as close as you could get to a martial arts degree with, there were no martial arts degrees but um, philosophy with an emphasis on uh, learning the different Asian religious backgrounds and things like that and and Western philosophical thought and um, as well as Eastern thought and so that's that was just my what I wanted to do somewhere around my senior year um, one of the professors um, I can't remember exactly what he was teaching, but somehow it caught my imagination. I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be a college professor. Now, this is right during the Vietnam War uh, time, and so um, if you stayed in school and got good grades, they didn't draft you. Uh, I was actually drafted because I didn't get good grades at one point, and um, I went to the um, the station and all, and um, I was the the group leader. They gave me all the instructions, and we got on the bus, and Went down I presented it to the sergeant or whoever it was. Um and I I figured, well, okay, I'm going to Vietnam. And um as it turns out, um they re- renewed my um deferment. And so um I stayed in school. Um while I was in school again I made the connections to karate clubs and karate organization. I taught karate that was how I uh, basically had spending money was karate clubs and and things. So a- after the bachelor's degree, I decided to go back and get a master's degree. I had nothing else to do. This was 1973. Jimmy Carter was in in power. There were no jobs. Um, the um, it was not a good time to be around to try to uh, get things done. So I just stayed in school, got a master's degree in sociology because I, I enjoyed that. And at the same time, I'm I wrote for a martial arts uh, research and things. My master's thesis was um, um, the occupational role of the American sensei. And at the time, if you were uh, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, you were respected as a as a possible martial artist. In fact, it was that was so long ago that if you said if you happen to be Japanese and and you got mad at someone? They would say, "Nah, you might know karate, man." I mean, that was the stigma, the stereotypes back then in the in the 70s. So um, my research was really taking pictures of um, American martial artists like a Chuck Norris and um, uh, any number of other people. But I would part of the study was I would show the um, uh, show a a person in the study um, a picture of an American martial artist. Um, and a uh, like a Ron Van Cleef, and uh, I would show him a, an Asian. And I'd say, which one is the martial artist? And they would invariably go with the Asian all the way through. So um, there was still a strong stereotype. But guys like Chuck Norris, who got into the, uh, the movies, um, and then, of course, you had uh, Kung Fu and different things like that, that changed the stereotype. So uh, people started recognizing Americans or non-Asians as um, as qualified karate instructors. So it, that's how it was changing there in the in the 1970s. Uh, after the masters, I decided to go back and get the uh, doctorate because at that point I wanted to be a college professor, and you pretty much had to have the um, the doctorate to get full time to get a tenure track position. And so I worked in. Um, education administration um and again every chance i had i would study martial arts any paper i had whether it was on role playing or it was on um some type of educational teaching i would compare asian methods to um uh western methods so my dissertation was um about how and again this has been 30 some years so it was um, um how the uh, how the arts had changed once they became once they were brought into the United States. The United States um, was a melting pot and so we had the best from the Japanese arts, the Korean arts, the Filipino arts. Why did we have those? Because the top masters came to the United States for economic benefits. While they made six dollars a week over there, they could make60 dollars a night here. So they it was just a real, Um, explosion of martial arts. In fact, 1973 was the real, you know, I probably should have read some of my stuff before I did this interview, (laughs) because again, it's been uh, 30, 40 years since I've I've done this stuff, Uh, written these type of things, or even read my dissertation and my my master's thesis. But um, 1973 was the year that martial arts exploded, the death of Bruce Lee, Everyone got interested in it. He had his uh, movie Enter the Dragon came came out. There were the um, any number of Asian martial arts uh, movies coming in. There was the what was called the blacks uh, black um, what is that called? Uh, well, in in the inner cities, there were a lot of uh, black martial artists doing movies. Um, in fact, I had to go to a city to, to watch them because we did, they didn't come to smaller towns, more rural areas, couldn't get them, um, but they were in the more populated areas, but um, we would watch those, and, and then in 1974, we had the oil embargo, and people that had, and most martial arts professionals at the time would have three or four or five karate schools in different towns, and so they travel from one town on a Monday night, they'd be in another town on a thir- Tuesday night, another town on a Wednesday night. And that's how you made your living by having a, a real chain of martial arts schools. Um, the, um, again, the oil embargo took place in 1974. And so that killed it. I mean, all of a sudden martial arts, it was hard to find schools, things like that. But if you had a martial arts school, you could work in your own area. So I continued to teach martial arts Um, I started teaching at Radford University as an adjunct professor, uh, the karate club, and then it was so popular that uh, I was able to talk the uh, vice president into um, a four credit class. And so I had several classes that I offered there. Um, You know, in everyone's history, there's usually one person that stands out that, that gave you a pat on the back, a little bit of push that opened the door for you. That was uh, Dr. Moore who um, uh, encouraged the department to, um, to let me teach, and, um, which was an uphill battle. I mean, no college has had martial arts. All the physical education departments, they, they did not think in terms of martial arts. So when I started teaching, it was extremely popular. It was maybe the first or second class to fill up um, for years. So in 1986 one of the professors finally uh, retired and um I was able to get that job a tenure track position and I was in. <laughs> so that's when I began writing and things like that and researching martial arts and uh uh developing programs um I'll just keep on talking here. Oh, Nineteen-
0: I mean, one, one side uh, question uh, like when you were taking these pictures um yeah. who are some people you got to photograph if you don't mind? Well
1: I wasn't really a photographer, but I, I was fortunate to know a guy named Rick uh, Anderton, who was a professional photographer. And we literally we would go around taking pictures. Um, in 19, 1982, um, Joe Lewis moved back to Raleigh, North Carolina. He'd been living in Hollywood for 10, 15 years, um, working on in motion pictures and uh, some movies and TV shows and things like that and teaching. Uh, interesting story about Joe. Uh, Joe had a karate school in 1968 with uh, Bob Wall. Um, he also started working with Bruce Lee. He discovered that Bruce Lee was teaching private lessons. He didn't have a group school. He had, of course, we all know about the, uh, the branch schools that he had in uh, Oakland and also in Chinatown. Small little schools, 10, 15 students not enough to make <laughs> make a living off of, but they were little branch schools that were put together primarily by the person that wanted to do it was Dan and his aunt who wanted to have a class. So he talked Bruce into doing that. Uh, James Lee wanted to have a class in Oakland. So he talked Bruce into uh, becoming the like the head instructor. And so Bruce would go to these maybe once or twice a week for a, for a period of uh, months and then it would be every every few weeks, uh, once a month, things like that. So the real instructors of those were James Lee at Oakland and Dan and his in Chinatown. They were the primary instructors there. Bruce spent his time pursuing movies and also teaching private lessons. He didn't make, he didn't make hardly anything. I mean, $10, $15 a month off of the um, the school, the branch schools. There would be like clubs where if you had a small school in the um, in in adjoining town that you worked on Tuesdays and then you had another one, that, that's what, that was the mentality back then. Joe Norris was probably one of the first ones to have the chain school in 1968. And, and he had bought one of the schools from Joe Lewis, uh, as I was mentioning. Uh, so Joe had the karate school with, um, with Bob Wall. He really didn't like teaching karate. He really didn't have the discipline that it takes to think long range. I've got to do this part now because in a year, the student needs to be at this level. So um, when he started working with Bruce Lee, Bruce was doing private lessons. He pitched Joe on the idea of finding private students and teaching private lessons. And that's what Joe did uh, for for the majority of his career, really. Seminars or private lessons is is where he made his money uh, doing that. So where was, I have no idea. Ask me a question.
0: So I was, uh, we were talking about, um, yeah, I was just interested uh, with this photography project that you were talking about just to getting to take pictures of martial artists. Um, And then you had mentioned when Joe had moved to Raleigh, North Carolina.
1: Yeah. So Joe had been in Hollywood making a big name. Um, He was like my idol. He was my idol because I was a Korean martial arts stylist. Now in the 1960s and early 1970s, the Korean Taekwondo was really Japanese Shotokan using Korean names. I didn't know that until I went to college, and I met a guy that was Shotokan Karate. Um, he was in a same same class, uh, maybe freshman, sophomore, something like that. And we started comparing notes. We were doing the same forms. We were doing the same types of kicks. And I thought, well, how did this happen? Well, I, I learned later that it was um, the Koreans. It's debatable, did they have a martial art? Probably not, Um, but thousands of them were drafted into the Japanese military in the early 1900s and that's where they learned Shotokan karate. So when the war was over, of course, they had a distaste for Japanese. So they came back and and changed the names from karate to Sudo, China hand, way of the China hand, meant the same thing, same techniques, but using Korean terminology instead of uh, the Japanese terminology. By 1968, when I took my first class and got into my first club there, um, it was hardcore Japanese karate, but nobody mentioned that. They used the, um, the Korean terminology and called it Taekwondo. 1966, I had a, um, well, I had Masoyama's book, but uh, one of the uh, students in my school, I had taken lessons. I believe it was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, maybe Kempo or something like that. Um, and I worked with him for a while to get some of the basic ideas on kicking and punching. And so, by the time I got into Taekwondo, it started making sense to me because if you look at a book, you'd see a, a low block, and you'd see a picture of here's a punch, but you didn't know the transition. They, you couldn't see what how you transitioned from one to the other. There are a lot of people that know basic jujitsu uh, locks and holds and movements on the floor, but they don't know the transition. So that's, that's a big difference uh, there. So uh, as far as pictures, um, I wasn't really into the pictures really, but I did have a photographer go with me. Uh, so Joe Lewis had moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 1982. Um, that was about a five hour drive for me. I called him up on the phone. He was living at the YMCA he pretty much, when you don't have deals, movie deals, or you don't have um, TV shows, to, you, you're not making any money. So when he came back to Raleigh, he had no, no money at all, at all. <clears throat> excuse me. His mom had a farm there, his dad had a farm too, uh, but he had passed away, his mar- mom lived there. And so he lived on the farm, but he had on a, uh, a little room at the YMCA. You know, he was living at the YMCA. <laughs> And so that's where we would go uh, to spar with him. If you train with Joe, if you work with Joe, it he never taught a class. He never you um, never come in and he'd work on your You'd spar. You'd put on your gear and you sparred. So the first time I met Joe in 1982, I said, Joe, I'd also like to train. He said, Well, put on your gear. So I said, Oh, right, I brought my gear because I was really into sparring. And so we trained there. He was Kind of out of shape. I mean, just came from um Hollywood. He said he hadn't sparred in seven years because he was afraid of getting hit and you know, um injuries and things like that. So he wasn't in the best of shape there, but he was still massive and he was he was lifting weights and he was getting back into shape. And um I went down there every month for a, a year or two, probably two years. And um he just became phenomenal. I mean. He got so good, so fast, but he always was good. <laughs> he just was hadn't trained, and um, so um, I was able to learn a lot from uh, Joe. I was I was dedicated to uh, training with Joe. We sort of had an agreement that I would write stories on him, print articles, and um, he would work with me. And I told him up front, I'm most interested in what Bruce Lee taught you, and um, so a, we worked on that. Go ahead.
0: I have a book called that.
1: Um, about what Bruce Lee. Uh,
0: yeah. I, me book. Book. I think it's called What Bruce Lee Taught Me or something. Yeah, like What me. Bruce
1: Lee Taught Me About Jeet Kune Do. Well, that's that's part of what he taught. But Bruce would, I mean, Joe never really told. I mean, I had him do seminars in Jeet Kune Do and stuff. He'd do a couple of those. But um, the five ways of attack that, that Joe was so big on, that came right out of Jeet Kune Do. Um, the offensive approach is the terminology that joe used but it was bridging the gap that bruce lee and joe L- lewis worked on so joe always taught fighting and the fighting stemmed largely from the Ji kune do that he worked with bruce he studied with bruce religiously from 1968 into 1969 so it was um it was pretty serious uh work that they did and and it's right there but it because I was a college professor, because I did research techniques and took classes in research, um, I was able to apply those. And so what I gathered from what Joe was doing isn't what Joe would say, but it, I didn't learn it from what he said, I learned it from what he constantly did, from observing carefully. And then it took me 10 years, Joe's been dead for 10 years. Um, and I, I kept putting together, a method called triangulation where you look at different research methods, which I had applied there. I looked at all the, well, the data. It's not something that I would typically talk about. I'd say all the stuff I learned from him. (laughs) Um, And so I I see what Jeet Kune Do was kind of the final phase. That's what I talk about now. I have an article coming out in the spring issue of Black Belt Magazine that really should blow some minds about what Jeet Kune Do is, um, people would say it's intercepting. Well, how do you intercept? Uh, it was always, well, you just take your foot foot and you crash in and boom, hit them. Okay, that, that works once, but it doesn't work every time. There has to be another way. So um, I, I'll talk about that in the, uh, in the um, I think it's the March, March. You know, Black Belt is on down to four times a year. It was the biggest, now it's the only. Wow. Yeah,
0: I didn't know. I didn't know they had uh, gone, gone down to that. You know, I know Century had acquired them. And then with the pandemic, they um, I knew they put out less content. But I did. St- I do still see them putting out content. But yeah, that's um, that sadly kind of makes sense. But um,
1: Century Century really bought them, in my opinion, um, as a service to the martial arts community. Mm-hmm. It's not it was selling one hundred thousand. In the, in the early 2000s. It's it's way down now. So I don't think they make anything off of it. I think they um, I think they're just doing it as a it's historical and they didn't want to see it drop. And so they they're keeping it and they're funneling the money into it and things will turn around eventually. And I, I really admire Century for doing that. I mean, I, that's um, a real contribution. I don't think they ever talk about it. I've never heard about it, but once you start connecting the dots, you find out that's what's, that's what's taking place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and one thing, Dr. Beasley, that keeps coming up, um, you know, I talked, I uh, mentioned that I've trained with, um, Danny Dring for yeah. years. And he is the first person I ever heard say your name, uh, and since have met multiple people that have gone to karate college or, but you know, when I training with Dring so much over the years, um, he would constantly mention this lecture you gave at this Jeet Kune Do camp in 1993 over probably some of the stuff that you're talking about, but just the different phases of martial arts and how, you know, all of these different dissegmented arts tie together. But I've heard him reference that lecture that you gave multiple times. And, um, talking to a couple of people who know you that also, uh, you know, mutual acquaintances, your, your name comes up, uh, with Jeet Kune Do, quite a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, I've had a, a an extreme interest. I probably have, oh, thirty books over here on my other shelf. Um, um, uh, over, you know, Bruce Bruce books or about Bruce or JKD Terry Tom, you you name it. Uh, I've tried to chase it down. Um, yeah. But, you know, what do you think? Um, some of the stuff we're talking about right here, seventies and eighties going into like that era of of 93 um what sort of influence did that stuff have because i mean in in how much of it was bruce lee and jkd and then you know other other people like uh chuck norris or joe lewis or bill Wallace? like what kind of role would you say um all of those people i just mentioned played really in like the evolution of what we see now
1: well, first, let me say Danny Dring is a phenomenal martial artist, as as you probably know. He's he's got that big booming voice. He he really commands an audience um, when he does that. And he and he would come to Karate College for probably ten years with uh, a great professor there. Uh, I Haven't seen him in a while, but um, you know, people get older and they they uh, their priorities change. So he wasn't just out chasing the seminars. And um, um, but Karate College was a Phenomenal place to learn so many different arts and things like that. So your question was, um, 1993, Jeet Kune Do became popular again. It did. And that was because of the movie, um, uh, The Bruce Lee Story, mm-hmm. came out in 1993. Um, what had happened to me at that point, since we're talking about Jeet Kune Do, is I had gone to a number of uh, the Dan Nizanto seminars. But... Um, at, on the seminar circuit, Dan only taught Kali, and then he taught Celad, and then I'm sure he t- taught a lot of things after that. But this was, I think my first one was 1983, and my last one was 1988. So about five years there. Um, in uh, North Carolina, several times, Chicago, uh, I think Atlanta, and uh, one other place, I'm not sure where. Uh, but the person that was teaching the G Kune was Larry Hartzell. Larry Hartzell was from Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and uh, he was also a black belt in Kempo, but he had been teaching the, um, the Jeet Kune Do there. And when I would go to seminars, the, um, I called the JKD concepts at the time is what they called it. Um, it wasn't Jeet Kune Do. There was no Jeet Kune Do in the JKD concepts, but well, so if you look at Dan, each Bruce Lee student learned something different. Apparently they had their own opinion on what was being taught. Uh, Ted Wong learned only Jeet Kune Do. He had nothing to compare it to. So he learned straight Jeet Kune Do. And if you ever watched Ted Wong, it was exactly Jeet Kune Do. But Ted didn't spar. Ted trained. Ted was very good at what he did, but he didn't fight. Joe Lewis learned exactly the same thing. And when Joe and and, uh, Ted would compare notes, they learned the same thing. But Joe was a fighter. So he applied it. And when you apply it, something else happens. It's like having that, um, that popcorn that you put in the microwave and it's, it's just a little bundle and then all of a sudden it pops, it explodes. Jeet Kune Do is just like that. Jeet Kune Do is, real Jeet Kune Do is four or five kicking techniques, four or five punching techniques um, and, a, and a lot on personal conditioning and, and, and uh, uh, testing. And by testing, I mean sparring. You have to put on the gear and you have to try it full contact. Um, what got me into Jikundo in the 70s, 73, actually 71, 72, 73, something like that, was the article that Bruce Lee wrote that in 1971, September 1971, in which he said, "I haven't created a new martial art. Uh, Ji Kundo can be always, but it's bound by no way. I was a philosophy major. And I thought, what? What are you talking about? How can an art be always and bound by no way? It's really very simple. Every art has a a front kick, right? Every art has a round kick of sorts. They call it different names. Every art has a side kick of sorts. Every art has a forward hand punch, a jab, we could call it, a right cross, um, a back fist of type, a hooking punch of some type, Every art has that. In Jeet Kune Do, there's no set way to do those. You train and you spar, and my forward hand punch might look a little bit different than yours. But it's still, it's always gonna be, as I say in Black Belt Magazine, a front kick is always gonna be the art of kicking forward. You could call it whatever name you want to, you can say it works like this. The difference in Jeet Kune do and classical arts is classical arts say, the front kick is exactly like this. Your knee comes up here. You tilt back, you thrust in, your feet have to be turned like this. You put they're making an art out of it. It's a product that they're turning out. So everyone is the same. In jiu-jitsu, no person is expected to be the same. They might look the same, but you do what's right. So there's only like um, again, you know, a front front kick, round kick, side kick. There's all variations of those techniques. There's the jab, the cross, the hook, the back fist. Um, so you're looking at four or five hand techniques, four or five kicking techniques. That's it, that's Jeet Kune But here's the key that other people did not figure out. But again, I was able to figure out not by what Joe Lewis said, but what he constantly did. Okay. He was constantly talking about and teaching me and others that the offensive approach, the person's over there and you've got to get from here to there to hit them. They could be hitting at you. You could be hitting at them. They might be taller, they might be shorter, but you still have to bridge the gap. He calls it the offensive approach, okay? And he said there were five ways to do that. You can go directly in if you're fast. You can fake or, or move one way or the other called an indirect attack. You could put several techniques together called a combination, or you could put several angles or ways together called a combination. You could grab the person and immobilize. Joe's favorite technique in the 60s was to grab the person's gi, pull them in and just slam them with a reverse punch until they gave up. Was that, and that would be called um, trapping. Okay, because you're trapping the person, you're immobilizing the person. And and Joe often talks about he'd tear the geese off every every tournament he went to. He'd end up with four or five sleeves because that's how powerful he was. They'd never seen anything like Joe. And then when he started working with Bruce Lee, they had never even comprehended how good a person could be with his supercharged body. Okay, so uh, and then you have broken rhythm. That is, if I move in one direction, you want to kind of move in the same direction. So then we go back to Chikundo. What is Chindo? Jikundo is the way of the intercepting fist. Okay, fine, how do you intercept? Well, there's five ways to do that. okay? I might look at you and I might be so fast that I just, bam, hit you straight off. Okay? I might grab you that is immobilization and hit you. Okay, I might move in a different direction. If we're really in an argument, if we're in a bar and you're trying to hit at me and I just move over here, Chances are you're going to move over there toward me. So I've now intercepted your thought. How did I intercept it? I created it. I created your intention to move. If we're standing there, we're arguing, it's about a fight, and I fake a kick at your groin. I know that I've created the intention to block that. And now that I know your intention, I can intercept that and strike. That's the essence of Gondo. It's a strategy. Now, how do you apply this with four or five techniques? And why do you use four or five techniques? Because ultimately, when you try a 1,000 techniques, you, it's like guitar playing. You might have 50 guitars, but you just keep going down to where, I only need three. I only play three. And there you go, same thing. So using four or five techniques, well, look at boxing. For example, boxing has four techniques, basically. They Every situation in boxing, four techniques. So you just need a minimal of techniques. Um, it's not constantly adding, it's constantly chipping away. That's Jeet Kune do. So you have the strategy, you have four or five techniques. And now what do you need? You need to test those techniques constantly and evolve those techniques. The art doesn't evolve. That's contrary to what everyone's gonna tell you. The individual evolves. The art is always gonna be the same. Jeet Kune do is always gonna be the same. Interception. Primary or basic techniques. But so the art blends in with the individual and the individual skill, skills. Two people could do Jeet Kune do. one could be a lot better than the other. And that's that's basically how it works. So, how do you get better Jeet Kune Do conditioning? You build your body into a weapon. Now I'm 72, so I'm not really a weapon anymore. <laughs> if so, it's a very small one. Um, but years ago I, I sparred in 1983 I did 100 rounds of kickboxing and then I did it again in the spring of 1984 100 rounds of kickboxing. So you have to be in shape. you have to be in shape. you have to test, you have to develop your strength, uh, your speed, um, you have to be deceptive, um, you have to be accurate. These are the things that make G-Kun Do a very simple art. When Bruce said, I haven't created a new art, now you can see he didn't create a new art. He just did what people were doing, what everyone does. So today I practice Chi Kudo in the sense that I always practice a front kick, round kick, side kick, I always practice jab, cross, hook, uppercut. I practice those daily. I throw in hips, uh, I mean, uh, elbows and knees. Um, I don't spar a lot anymore because uh, again, at 72, you can dish it out, but the next day it hurts, and you have to be 72 to, to know that. Um, at 36, that doesn't make any sense, but at some point, your body just doesn't, and especially if you've used it as much as typical martial arts people, professionals anyway, use it. It becomes, um, you just uh, use up a lot of, your, lot of your life force there. I mean, you can keep it. I can do a lot more than anyone else 72, that doesn't isn't a martial artist, does, but still, just my concept of what I'm able to do now is greatly reduced from what I could do uh, when I put out the videos in the 1990s. I mean, that was really kind of my peak. I was 47 at the time. Most people would say they peak in their 20s or 30s. I was a late bloomer, so that really was, I think, my, my when I when I peaked as a martial artist. I could still do that in the 50s, though. Um, so um, so that's, when, that's what Jeet Kune Do is about. And so the reason I got into Jeet Kune Do was because Bruce Lee wrote these terms, my art can be always and bound by none. How do you do that? Well, now I know. 40, 50 years, 50 years later, now I know. Uh, and my version of Jeet Kune Do is very different from the, um, the JKD concepts because Dan studied closely with Bruce Lee but what he pulled out of it is you research different arts and this um, this theory of um, of distance uh, range. I started to call it critical range theory. I don't know where I got that, but it just popped into my brain. <laughs> um, it's the range, range theory. So he, he envisioned that there are some arts that are going to be great at long range kicking. There are some arts that are going to be great at medium distance, boxing. There are some arts that are going to be terrific at trapping in close, Wing Chun, Kali. There are going to be some arts that are going to be terrific on the ground or grappling, judo, jiu-jitsu, things like that. So if you ever took those seminars, if you go in one time, you learn this art, some fundamentals, and the next time it's other fundamentals, and the next time it's other fundamentals, and the The uh, students that um, I have known are very adept at Kali and Wing Chun and Thai boxing and now Jiu Jitsu. And it is a phenomenal uh, uh, method of learning martial arts. It took true genius to do that. I attribute that true genius to Dan Inazanto. And I would say Dan Inazanto is the um, grandfather of um, mixed martial arts in the US, not Bruce Lee. People say that because he's the big name. Um, and, of course, the Gracies, you have to look at them, too, because they actually brought it in and made it work. So, uh, oh, we're going all over the place here, but uh, that's typically what happens when you get two professors together.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's great. And, I mean, that's, you know, really whether what I was kind of getting at earlier is whether or not it's a, a correct assertion that uh, I think culturally – because of the explosion of the UFC and the specials they've made, it's like they've almost uh, appropriated Bruce Lee as this grandfather of modern mixed martial arts, you know? And it, it seems to be, uh, just listening to you talk and kind of what's popping in my head, that it's it's really the interpretations and and efforts by some people that directly train with him, Mike Inasano or Joe Lewis, and their influence on people like. You know, it's not just Bruce Bruce Lee has, uh, has been um, in, influenced people that never met him, and that's something that's very interesting to me. But um, you know, he gets a lot of credit, and I don't think he. You know, I know there's a whole camp of of haters that he's just an actor. You know, and and I, I do I do agree that it's more than that. But I, but I also agree that um, you know he he gets a lot of do. Where there's some side conversations we can have about some amazing martial artists like. I, 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 Joe Lewis, for example, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, well, so that's, you know, what do you think is in store for the next 50 years of martial arts?
1: Well, let's talk about Bruce Lee and, and MMA first. Let me just yeah, say this. Yeah. Um, Bruce Lee was the big name. Dana White's the one that made that connection. And why did he make that connection? If you watch enter the dragon in the first 10 minutes, you'll see Bruce full contact fighting, punching, kicking, and then how does he end it? Grappling. The guy taps out. Okay, that he's the father of MMA. Uh, I don't really get that, um, but also that fed the flame of Jeet Kune Do is really about different ranges: having a kicking art, and having a, a grappling art, and having a punching art. And that's a good direction to go. That that's genius. I'm not discounting that at all. Um, but again, we have to go back to that 1971 article. You know, you have to go back to the evidence that Bruce Lee provided. And what he provided was, I have not created an art. Uh, Jeet Kune Do is the way of no way. You know, people ask me all the time, what is your art? I'm not a Jeet Kune Do instructor. I'm not a t- karate instructor. I'm not a Jiu Jitsu instructor, Japanese Jiu Jitsu. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Back in the 1990s, we had Henzo Gracie in a karate college. I was all excited about learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I go into the class, and, and we were basically doing the how to get the guy in the guard, and then how to pass the guard. Okay, I, I, I spent maybe uh, 30 minutes doing that, and I thought, This isn't something I can teach at the college. I'm not gonna have co-eds get in here. Girls are gonna lay down, put their legs apart. Guys are gonna jump into their guard. It's not gonna happen. So it was of no use to me. It's valuable information, I'm sure. Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is highly popular. It's a great, great art. But for me personally, as a teacher, that was my profession. It was of no use to me. Uh, And I know of another college instructor who um, they tried to pull that off and uh, he was he was called up two or three times for sexual harassment and eventually he he had to resign you there's some things you're not gonna do I tried it in a couple of classes but the girls and I separated guys and girls the guys would go ahead and get in the guard and things like that they didn't really like it except for if they'd had some jiu-jitsu training the girls refused to lay down put their legs apart and let Another girl get into their garden. Refuse to do that. Are there girls to do it? Sure. Is there anything wrong with it? Absolutely not. But on a college class, they're much more interested in in other things than, than being professionals in a in a particular art. So, so um, a Japanese jujitsu. I've done that since um, 60s, 70s. Well, in the 70s, I, I taught jujitsu. Uh, uh, for a number of years. Um, jiu-jitsu, karate, of course, kickboxing. Interesting story on the kickboxing. So uh, I started again, um, full-time martial arts, six, 1968, learning the taekwondo. I thought the art was everything. I bought into it completely. Um, 1974, 1973, Jun Ri developed the safety gear, safety equipment, hand gear, foot gear. 1974, it was finally available in, uh, in Christiansburg, Virginia. I immediately bought it. We went over and we started sparring. And all of a sudden you find out that, hey, that uh, punch you learned, it just doesn't knock anybody down. That, round, that double round kick to the face, it's like slapping them twice. <laughs> so um, I found that it was just impossible to do some things. And so that's when I really started learning for myself what works for me um, 19, this 1974, 1977. I got into my first boxing class. Uh, um, Golden Gloves boxer was teaching a camp that I was teaching at. so let's spar. I said okay, fine. Put it on. So we put on the gear. We move around. I smack him with a round kick, then with a hook kick, then a side kick to the body, then another round kick, then a back fist. I'm moving. I'm moving. I'm hitting him. And I say to myself, this is too easy. I think I'll get in and punch him. So I throw it right across, he drops me. Liver, liver punch. He just steps over like any boxer would. Boom, throws it right in, drops me. It hurt so much, I couldn't get up for at least a minute or so. And um, then we got back up and he said, look, you can't kick, we're only gonna box. Well, that didn't do me any good, I wasn't a boxer. But I learned from him. I trained with him for a year or so, was in the Virginia Tech Boxing Club um that I think the nights were like Wednesdays and we'd go on a Wednesday one time you have you, everybody sparred you'd be sparring with a golden gloves boxer next night you'd be sparring with a beginner so it was all over the place but it, it was um really good experience worthwhile experience I know I had told you 50 minutes but uh let's do just a couple of things to wrap things up
0: keep going yeah I'll take over I'm, I'm really enjoyed listening to you we'll have to do this again you know off in the future for sure
1: yeah, well, we spent too much time on uh, on guitars, <laughs> <laughs> which was the fun part. Um, so so I think you had ask me where I see the martial arts going in the future. Um, I think that, well, Jiu Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, qualified that Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is the uh, is the it art right now in the 1960s and, and even into the 70s. Karate was the it art. If you opened up a karate school, people would flock. Now you open a karate school, nobody wants to come to that. You have to really go out and recruit them. Kids, kids will come to it. Um, if you did a nin- ninja school, if you opened up ninjutsu, nobody wants to do that. Ninjutsu has been, uh, has become a, a Halloween uh, activity. Now, uh, again, writer and researcher, that's what I've, I've done professionally. Um, in the 1980s, when ninjutsu became popular, became popular after uh, Shogun played on TV and there was ninja in there and and, uh, Stephen Hayes started promoting it, writing about it. Um, Nine Deaths of the Ninja, all those things, Shokuzuki, all those things. became very popular in the 1990s. So I argued that when you have a new art coming into America, other art or other countries are going to be different. If you have a new art coming to America, Americans want to immediately mix it and compete with it. And so ninjutsu, of course, had no competition at the time. Why? It was too deadly. Go back 10 years. Karate had no competitions. Why? Because it was too deadly. Kata was the only way you could really practice a martial arts. So um, I argued that about ninjutsu. And I, I wrote about it in magazine articles, um, you need to have an obstacle course where they would do this and then they do that and, and they throw stars and then they have archery and then they would spar with someone and then they would uh, run over water uh, things and they would climb up walls and things. Well, that's, that's uh, what happened with, the, what do they call it, American Ninja Warrior. So I was writing about that in the 1980s and probably in uh, 80s, 90s, about 40 years later, they've got American Ninja Warrior that's, a, that's extremely popular. You don't see any traditional ninjutsu schools around. You might somewhere. Um, like any other traditional martial art, they have their value. Um, but they, the way they keep the students in there is they say to the students, this is the right way, everything else is wrong. My first day in uh, karate class in 1968, um, the instructor said, boxing is bad. These reverse punches will kill a man. <laughs> Boxers will hit something and it just won't hurt anyone. So where do I see martial arts going in the future? Um, I think that it's going to... There's going to be a lot more private instruction instead of the big schools. But some big schools are going to work, um, getting primarily it's their clientele kids, some adults if they offer a you know a, a um, an aerobic type of kickboxing or or a fitness type of kickboxing. That's always going to be popular. Um, boxing. My son who started. My, he's uh, 29 now. Uh, Tyler is his name, and he started. Um, martial arts when he was two or three, got his blue belt from uh, Henzo Gracie. Um, He's worked with Bill Wallace, Joe Lewis for years at the Karate College. And of course I've taught him as well. Uh, He trained in boxing, he was a club boxer uh, for a couple of years. And so um, he has a a school, he teaches private and semi-private lessons. And the big draw is boxing. People wanna come in and learn boxing, but not have to go into a boxing uh, community. Um, You know, a larger city where they actually have boxers, people that see boxing as their way out of the city, their way out of poverty.